Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, where we take a tour of the universe each week. We try to dive into either the physical sciences, astronomy, cosmology, geology, all the way down into the nitty-gritty chemistry, physics, and even psychology and anthropology side of things, alongside, as another alternative view of what the universe means, the universe of your mind. It's a deep well of thought, contemplation, uh, meditation, reaction, the the phenomenon of human consciousness, your mind, your worldview, what you think about the world before you even ask questions about it is one of the most important universes that we will ever explore. How is your universe next door doing? Nick Shauna. My universe is doing very well. Okay, it looks like it's tidy and fit and, of course, always being retooled and spiffed up by the, the Lordship of Christ in your life. We appreciate you and your dear wife, Katie, and all that you're doing to support the work of the C.S. Lewis Society. Woo-hoo! Woo! <laughs> that's our, our so you've heard of a shout-out, that's a woo-hoo out. And so, <laughs> so we're excited that we're going to be able to uh, kind of bring a report very soon here on the visit of our dear friend, Dr. Doug Axe, the author of the book Undeniable. And he is undeniably one of the leading lights of the research wing of the Intelligent Design movement, a movement which I think is taking on extra energy because of the impact that Michael Behe's new book just out a month ago, Darwin Devolves, is having across the world. I mean, it's amazing. Even Dr. Behe's colleagues, uh, two of his colleagues at the biology department at Lehigh University, uh, University of Lehigh in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, they took uh, pot shots at Behe. And then he had a wonderful three-part reply to his colleagues, and he said, thank you very much, I appreciate them, these are wonderful people, I know them personally, but their arguments against my book basically fall to the ground. They begin to melt upon scrutiny. And so the engaging of this, you know, miniature debate between Dr. Behe and his own department, uh, which is dismissing his book, and and he is basically showing why their objections to his book do not add up, they do not carry water to the finish line. Mixing metaphors a bit, but I want to just uh, give a, a kind of a thank you to Dr. Michael Behe for his uh, keeping us in very close touch with him through this whole process of monitoring the reaction of the scientific world to his book, which I count as the single most powerful book ever written critiquing Darwinian theory, just out a month ago. Darwin Devolves, it's this, you might think of it, the culmination of a three-part, well, three, three books count as a trilogy. So this is the completion of the trilogy. They began in 1996, a book that shocked the world back then and even garnered the praise of the, universe, um, of the New York Times and other leading lights in the world of science uh, reporting. So today our goal is to talk about the springboards of discussion, some of them scientific, some of them practical, some of them, you know, philosophical, at least in a a tiny sense, uh, dealing with the topics of philosophy. 
but the springboards of discussion about apologetics are all important. And sometimes those springboards are right there in front of us, like, how do you know what's going to happen to you when you die? I mean, I don't know, well, Nick, you were raised at least in a church environment, mm-hmm. but before you uh, laid hold of this offer of eternal life, you know, died, Christ dying for your sins, being buried and raised, and then seen by eyewitnesses, <coughs> plentiful eyewitness accounts of mm-hmm. Christ having fulfilled the prophecy that he would come back. So... Um, I'm imagining that you probably at least sometime in your life have thought about the question of eternity. Oh, of course. Everyone does. Okay. It's unavoidable. Even if they say they don't, they do. <laughs> they're we lying. But I can remember me as a freshman having already had the gospel presented to me, freshman in college. This is in Princeton, New Jersey. And I remember thinking that January and February, before I dove into this investigative Bible study, I have no idea what happens to me when I die. And as I was uh, a student uh, worker at the Commons, the, the freshman-sophomore eating facility there, looks like a Gothic church, but it's just a big dining room. And, and so as I was sweeping, or I should say mopping, those big marble floors, every time the mop would hit the side of the wall, I would think death, death. Wow. Wop. You know, I just kept thinking death. And, and I was thinking of consulting uh, a, a local philosopher who is an atheist, a uh, really, really smart guy. My brother, Bill, had actually uh, encouraged me to take his course on Nietzsche and existentialism, which I did take my sophomore year. But uh, Walter Kaufman, one of the tops, uh, brilliant philosophers there in a very star-studded faculty of philosophers, he, I thought, might have the answer. Well, I didn't make the move to contact Walter Kaufman, but I did make the move to contact Jesus. Although I didn't know it was Jesus I was contacting. Mm -hmm. It was through the Word of God. And I said, I just need to study this Bible. I really don't know it. Even though I've gone to church my whole life up through, let's say, the age of 18, senior year in high school, I hardly know anything about it. So I think that the the question of eternity is is critical, is crucial. I think the question of how we got here, I mean, and where even we and the universe are going— So origins and future destiny kind of work together as part of a big story. And there is a book that just came out a little over a year ago, about two years ago, that tells this big story, the story of reality. And it was written by our friend... Greg Kokel. Okay. What a great book. Tell me, was it fun meeting Greg Kokel when we had him here for our annual banquet and running his book table? Oh, yeah. No, he's he's great. Um, Very Hmm. loving person. You would never guess that so many people Sweet, want him loving, to come speak. Sweet, loving, kindly, hum, yeah, humble. Humble is yeah. the word. He doesn't strut around like, I'm Greg Kokel. No. <laughs> Funny, too. He is hilarious. hilarious. And his book is hilarious. I oh, mean, yeah. But along it's easy with to read, too. It's, it's Extremely easy to read. So let me do a quick shout-out to Greg Kokel, who is now uh, reading, uh, running this fantastic ministry based in L.A., based in Los Angeles, California. And it's called Stand to Reason, S-T-R. Just put the the three letters for Stand to Reason, str.org. And if you want to see him in action, which is kind of a a repeat of our invitation from before, you can just jump on our website, apologetics.org, and you can see a fantastic, unbelievably powerful five-minute briefing. It's a YouTube video embedded right there at apologetics.org, apologetics.org. 
and we've mentioned that we have a very enriched, fantastic array of video links there on our homepage. We're pretty excited about that. But Greg Kokel tackled this big question of the springboard of origins, where do we come from, and even the philosophical options, you know, mindism, matterism, and then Christian theism. He, he tackles the big three that are duking it out. <coughs> but then when, when you get through, halfway through, he brings in the, the critical question, who was this Jesus, this kind of the hinge of history? Was he really here to do something more than just teach? Everybody admits he was a great teacher, great you know moral philosopher or something like that. But then very winsomely and elegantly, Kokel shows he can't be even a good teacher if what he said about himself wasn't true. Because a good teacher doesn't spread either craziness or outright lies in the midst of his teaching. Especially when they claim to be God. Well, exa- and that's the key. That's exactly the key point. If he's claiming to be the originator, the mastermind of the universe, if he claims to be eternally existing, check out John <laughs> chapter 8, read the whole thing, and he claims to be sinless, but at the end he says, if this wasn't enough, I'll put a cherry on the top. I'm going to let you know, before Abraham was, I am. They were not too happy about that. They were not happy campers, and they actually kind of took up stones, and before they could find out, now where is this guy as they're holding their stones to hit him, he slipped out of the way. And, and he said, well, I'll let them cool down. Mm. You know, my execution will be for a later time. Which tells us they knew exactly the point he was making. Um, exactly. He was not dodging the bullets no. of, of, of vehement opposition. In front, in front of their, their most harsh accusations, he stood like a rock. And so Jesus, the one who claimed to be God, the one who said, you know, I am giving my life for you all, is the one who did on the cross <laughs> sacrifice his life came back alive three days later and against the expectations this is the part that kills me and he said over and over i'm going to die and i'm going to rise so this was an, a stark uh, announcement prophecy if you will and he repeated it and repeated it over and over and over and sometimes it was blatant sometimes it was more along the lines of a hint uh, you know sometimes he spoke in metaphors sometimes he didn't you know use any uh, speech uh uh, parts of you know la- language helps uh, along the lines of similes or metaphors or you know uh, expressions that were more symbolic. He was very very clear, and the, bless their hearts, the disciples did not catch what he was saying. <laughs> and all, so that's also clear. <laughs> yeah, they, they were clueless, and of course uh, we we would would it be best for not to, us to swagger too much because yeah. we would have been clueless if we were in their shoes. Probably more clueless. And probably more clueless. Yes, right. Like I don't understand what you're saying, Lord. So, I mean, they picture the Messiah as triumphant, and the Messiah is triumphant in the view of the Bible, but he's ultimately triumphant, and that does not forbid or bar, and, and, and in fact, it, it accentuates what a horrific thing it was when he was rejected. You know, I'm uh, still working on my uh, NET, the New English Translation version of Isaiah 53, and I was just stunned this morning as I was meditating on this rejection of Christ. It says in verse 3 of Isaiah 53, Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by people. One who experienced pain and was acquainted with illness, people hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant. And it's just that one verse really, I mean, almost clobbered me over the head. I'm thinking, that's exactly what Jesus was telling his disciples. I'm going to be despised. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be considered insignificant, a non-entity, you know, ignore him. 
He's just a, a crazy mm-hmm. guy. They couldn't even grasp it. They could not grasp the essence of what he was saying that was in line with exactly what the prophets had said, that is, God will eventually send his Messiah, his chosen one. And, of course, the Messiah, uh, the claim to be a Messiah, which he he made over and over and over, including in front of the high priest. Check it out, Mark 14, verse 62, when he was asked, are you the son of the blessed, you know, the one that we expect? He said, I am, and after this you will see me coming in the clouds of heaven. That's a reference to, of course, the Daniel chapter 7 uh, prophecy around verse 14 and thereabouts. And so what we see here coming from the very lips of Jesus is nothing less than an opportunity, a springboard. And that's why I like to think of this whole realm of Jesus's claims to deity, the way that C.S. Lewis viewed it as the most direct springboard to a discussion of the the evidence for the Christian faith. Because Jesus really made startling, if you will, shocking, you know, claims that stun us. I mean, uh, atonito is the way you say it in Spanish, which means basically, I got the wind knocked out of me. That's the whole idea. And so when we see the claims of Christ and and the claims to deity, uh, and these are things that were even brought out in, um, you know, modern-day classics, um, you know, Watchman Nee brought it out in a book he wrote in uh, 1935, even before Lewis mentioned the trilemma, Watchman Nee. Did you know that? The, the normal Christian life. I just found that out this week. No. Yeah, I need to find that in page and just put That's a little, a little l- lamp so that as, my, as the book sits on my shel- shelf, it'll actually have a glow coming from that page. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> Rather weird. <laughs> yes, but you'd have to turn off the lights to get the effect. Probably expensive, too. Yeah, probably expensive <laughs> if I get, let it go day and night for months. But anyway, but Watchman Nee brought that out, the great uh, you know, writer on spirituality uh, from, from China. It was actually proclaimed in, in a book that was written in 1859, and I can get you all the, the data on this. There's a wonderful study of the, the Lord Liar Lunatic argument that's um, uh, produced by some of the top people in apologetics. It's just come out recently. But what we see here is that the very claims of Jesus form a springboard. Well, what about science? Oh, you knew I was going to get to that. <laughs> Ultimately, the scientific theories of origins beg the, the issue. They beg the discussion of a potential, at least possibly considered, origin that is personal, that is intelligent, that is transcendent, that's out time, out, outside space and time. The universe is not eternal. Who? well, where did it come from? Because if the universe began at a point in time, that point in time, time didn't exist before the very uh, initiation point of the universe. That's called the singularity in science. So I think we could even use the singularity as a springboard for discussion. Where did the singularity come from? I mean, that's the starting point, but you don't have any matter. You don't have any energy. You don't have any time and space to work with. So suddenly, the origin of the universe from nothing. And by the way, that's the standard view of even the hot Big Bang Theory, mm-hmm. championed by the late uh, Stephen Hawking, Penrose and Ellis, and two other authors of that theory. And so when you ask the people that propose even the Big Bang Theory, where did the Big Bang come from? They, they just shrugged their shoulders. Well, maybe from an earlier universe. Yeah. And, then, and then you follow that up with a logical that question. explain anything. No, it doesn't because, number one, if you have an infinite su- su- succession, a series of universes, 
That violates a basic law of mathematics. You cannot have an infinitely past regression of events. You would never Mm -hmm. get to the starting point. And that is uh, scientifically incoherent. It's called the Kalam theory, and it's been confirmed in modern physics discussions and analyses. The second problem is that the idea of other prior universes existing outside of space and time has this huge embarrassment. That is, there's no evidence. No. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> good sci-fi movies, but... Yeah, it's great for, for plots, you know, sci-fi, TV series or movies. Uh, books, I mean, there are lots of probably science fiction books over the last 25 years that talk about, you know, going from this universe to another universe. It's a nice thought, like jumping from one bubble to another bubble. And just the question is, wait a minute, what if these bubbles exist in a realm that they can't even have contact with one another, as most scientists say, even in theoretical terms? So the existence of such a thing as a universe, which has brute, raw existence, and cannot have come from an earlier physical cause, that points to a spirit being, because the laws of physics relate to physical stuff. Mm-hmm. matter, energy, time, one dimension of time, space, three dimensions of space. If you have something non-physical, namely a spirit, that could give rise to the universe. Can we know that spirit personally? Yes, he has invaded uh, on, on a rescue mission. He has penetrated our universe. And what's shocking and delightful beyond belief is that he's become one of us to come near to us, to come alongside us, to literally die for us, paying our debt to the judge of the universe, himself taking the punishment upon his own being, his own shoulders, and then rising, bursting up, back up from the depth of that sea, holding in his hand that precious dripping thing in his hand, as C.S. Lewis puts it, picturing this whole process as a a skin diver, you know, a deep sea diver Mm -hmm. who's going down to get that pearl that's way down in the the murky depths of the of the harbor. Well, we are the pearl, and our eternal life with Christ is the pearl. And I would just encourage anybody who, who wants to get, get a summary, kind of an overview of this, is just consider getting either mere Christianity, Lewis's classic, the first ten chapters. It has five chapters that talk about the moral law as a pointer to God and what that means. Number one, there is a moral law that exists above us. And number two, we break that law daily. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> what do we do? How do we get back in right relationship with the foundation, the, the, the center of that moral law who's God? And that's the excitement of part two. The next five chapters bring the solution. God becoming one of us. God, as it were, invading enemy-held territory. What an amazing book. That's an amazing God. It's an amazing rescue plan, and it's an amazing Christ. So we see this, this kind of um, truth that bursts forth from the, 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 the story of creation and the scientific side of creation that gets me, and this is where we're really covering it with uh, both Doug Axe, who's here this weekend, and also, uh, in case you're hearing the podcast and or you happen to be May 1st or May 2nd in Atlanta, I'll be speaking at the Perimeter Church, also Johnson's Ferry Baptist Church. If you want in- information on that, just contact us at information at apologetics.org. I'm giving a talk called Darwin's Last Stand. And the subtitle is New Evidence That is Shattering the Credibility of Evolutionary the- um, Doctrines. Okay, Basically, it's new evidence that's shattering the credibility of evolutionary biology and so evolutionary theory. 
So what we're seeing here in front of us is an exciting moment in time in which uh, we're seeing an incredible breaking out of the opportunity to feature the evidence for Christ through the springboard of creation. Sometimes, if I can just add this in, because I know we've got just a few minutes left, sometimes the evidence uh, and the problems with evolutionary doctrine about the evidence form a springboard in the most unlikely of places. Let me mention a book I call the OOF book. Now, you may say, why do I call it the OOF? It sounds funny. That's in, in Spanish, UF is the word for uh. Like if yeah. somebody hits you in the stomach, you see the, the, the response, oof. Well, uh, I'm not UF, uh, University of Florida. Ha ha. Yeah. Yeah, pun there. <laughs> okay. This is OOF. It, you still pronounce it oof. OOF is the um, basically the key letters. It's the um, acronym for Origination of Organismal Form. So this is a book that was published in 2003 by MIT Press. Let me say that again. The book Origination of Organismal Form was published by MIT Press, which is not known as a publisher of lightweight or highly religious books. They are with the sciences and engineering all the way. They have a standard view at MIT, undoubtedly a very, very standard view uh, still today, of, of the doctrine of evolution. But they stuck their necks out, necks out a little bit. And in this uh, series on theoretical biology, it's called the Vienna Series in Theoretical Biology, these authors, actually there's 19 authors, uh, Nick, I just counted them up a few minutes ago, and there are 19 biologists, they're all specialists, and in the opening chapter, the origination from organismal form, they declare, I mean, this is like blatant, this is a shock, which raises the question, okay, well then what theory works? They say... In other words, Darwinism, they're talking about neo-Darwinism, the, the view that kind of, as it were, became popular in the 1940s and has been the ruling doctrine ever since. They say neo-Darwinism has no theory of the generative. Now, you may say, well, what does that mean? That's basically saying uh, what they describe, really, in the next sentence, that the uh, what's still lacking in evolutionary theory is specifically anything that addresses the morphological aspects of evolution. What does that mean? Okay, you're speaking Greek to me. Okay, I'll make it plain and simple. They're saying that even though they kind of still vaguely hold to common ancestry, everything is related, they say we have no good theory of how new structures, new organs, new organisms came into existence. And at this point, I feel like saying, bingo, what are you saying in this MIT book as you list 24 unanswered questions? They have on pages 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 four tables, four lists of questions. These are all unanswered questions. So, Nick, I, I got so excited when I saw this book. I actually called up at his uh, office, the Medical School of Valhalla. It's in New York State. His name is uh, Newman, okay? Uh, Stuart Newman, and I called him up, graduate of Columbia, and I said I was you know, just over a wit from him at, at Princeton uh, when I was a student, and so we were comparing notes, and he, I said, by the way, are these open questions, these unanswered questions that are, that are the core questions of evolutionary doctrine, are they still unanswered? Mm -hmm. He said, yes, they're still unanswered. Huh. In other words, we've made no progress. This is 2003. This is 2003. Almost 20 years. And this now has become the EES. This group is called the Extended Evolutionary Synthesis, EES. So the OOF has led to the ES, 
<laughs> uh, yeah, I call it the Oof East Group. Origination of Organismal Form, MIT Press, 2003. 24 unanswered questions. Uh, a declaration that we don't have any theory of the generative. That means we have no theory of macroevolution. For the theory of macroevolution. Exactly. We have no way to explain it. And wow. so what I'm finding is this is a springboard. This is an ideal springboard to bring up the most important questions you're going to ask. And uh, I would say, in general, just go to YouTube and find any good talk by Greg Kokel. We're going to be putting some more talks by yours truly, some of them filmed up in front of a crowd of 6,000 people in Maine. That'll come a little bit later. But, of course, order or get it from Amazon anywhere that book, the incredible book of, of the decade, and that is The Story of Reality by Greg Kokel. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.